Cryptosophy Great Works, number 11, Plato's Euthyphro. In this episode, Max and I attempt a discussion of one of Plato's shortest dialogues. We begin simply by catching up on the last few weeks and briefly discussing the relationship between vacation, leisure, and laziness, before speculating on why modern people have some difficulty approaching and relating to ancient mythological stories. In a great twist of irony, this segue involving discussion of Lev, Lev Grossman's The Magicians and Alan Moore's Watchmen actually implicitly sets us up for a sweeping conversation of the Euthyphro, additionally of the death of Socrates' dialogues in general. You see, modern people struggle to relate to ancient stories and myths because we've divorced concepts like scientific knowledge from religious truth. Just like Socrates, who doesn't let the supposed experts get away with knowing little to nothing about their domains of expertise, it turns out that our project of scientific knowledge is far more religious than we might believe. And that at least should be paused for some reflection. Max will briefly summarize the Euthyphro before we dive into the linguistic toolkit and the rules for philosophical engagement that Plato lays out in the Euthyphro. From there, we follow Socrates in the question, what is piety, and land in several unexpected spots. Welcome to the great works. Three, two, one, and we are live. Max, good evening. Good evening, Doyle. How are you doing today? Doing okay, doing okay. Uh, good evening, good afternoon, good morning to, to everyone listening. Um, hope you all are doing well um, listening to this podcast. This is now great works number 11. I believe. Yes. Can't believe I've read that many books. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, usually try and try and hit 30 books a year and maybe 10 of them hit like the definition of great. Yeah. I feel like I get about eight and about six of those are cryptosophy books. So I'm a big skimmer though, honestly. A lot of a lot of my reading is like I'll pick up a book about science of sleep and I'll read a chapter here and a chapter there of nonfiction. But I'm very bad at end-to-end reading of anything. But I guess that's just being part of the 21st century. Yeah, definitely a product of shorter attention spans. But I think there's also just like a discipline element to it that's no longer emphasized. Certainly. Um, and like that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you know, I was actually, I was just talking about this with my doctor of all people this morning. We had a conversation that in undergraduate education is achieved in the reading of roughly what, 150 books, maybe slightly less. Um, and, you know, somebody who's really like trying to read books cover to cover, cover to cover can read 150 books in just a few years, you know, and really compound their education again and again and again over what they just get their quote-unquote degree for their credential for sure the, the really nice part about college though that i think at least we get to do through this podcast but that i miss is you would get to read a reading and then hear a lecture on a reading and then you have to reread the reading when you went to write a paper on it and so you kind of felt like you read the book two or three times in the academic process and i think that really helped me uh, when you read alone, you kind of get what you get out of something. And I think this is probably why people do book clubs and things like that. But as soon as you have an interlocutor or someone else to talk to about it, the education compounds uh, more than the reading does on its own. 
at least even in the writing process. Yeah, totally. I think that's for sure true. That's for sure true. Well, perfect. So, so we're here ostensibly to talk about um, Plato's Euthyphro. And uh, I promise we'll get into um, all of the details. I think probably from a, if I'm playing the master of ceremonies role right now, I think um, we'll spend a few minutes here. I'd love to just kind of catch up with you, Max, uh, what you're reading, what you're thinking about, what podcasts you've been listening to um, in the last couple of weeks uh, since we've uh, recorded. Um, and then for everyone listening, we'll dive into the Euthyphro. We, we really hope to make this useful to you, um, whether you are just uh, reading the Euthyphro, whether you're interested in Plato and have never read one of his dialogues, um, but also if you are currently studying Plato's dialogues, particularly the, the so-called Socratic ones, um, Euthyphro is the first of those. Um, so hopefully um, this, po- this podcast, this conversation can be um, enlightening to say the least it's a short it's a short dialogue but it uh it it packs a big punch um and i think is very rightly considered um or or ordered as like the first of plato's dialogues in most collected editions thereof um so we'll get into all that um but max tell me what's up man um i mean most recently i guess for the past six months a lot of stuff about rockets which has been kind of awesome uh spacex is building their new rocket prototypes uh, I think the Chinese Space Agency lost, launched the center core of their sort of copy of the International Space Station today. Um, there's basically just a lot of things going on uh, with space. And so there's kind of new space races developing, new technology. I've been plugged into that. Uh, but I guess like my idea that maybe we could talk about that I've been thinking about this week um, is I have, for my company, I haven't taken more than three days off in a row for the last three years. And I'm about to take basically a full week, but I was, I was thinking, and I was like, what is the proper vacation time for a human being? And how should that time be spent? Cause I feel like everyone in some way abhors work. And I sometimes do about half the time, but at the same time that there's an endless feeling of needing to be there or being necessary for things to be processed. So I was thinking about it. I was like, leisure is kind of a form of laziness, but vacation in the other sense is uh, necessary for like rejuvenation or resetting, something like that. So I'm like, when is vacation laziness and when is it necessary? What's the difference there? And I wanted to see what, cause I know you've thought a lot about this in your own situation. What do you have like a kind of off the cuff answer on that? Um, yeah. Uh, frankly, I think that your framing of the problem is wrong because I, I, I guess backing up, at the, at the fundamental level, I believe that the human being is made for leisure. Um, the biggest clue to this from a symbolic religious point of view is that the, the human being is created on the sixth day in Genesis. And the seventh day is the day that God rests. So the first full day of, of mankind's existence is God's sacred day of rest. And only thereafter do we get the six days of work. And um, it's really interesting when, when Christianity comes along and transfers essentially the day of rest from the Sabbath, the last day of the week um, to Sunday, which is the first day of the week. One of the things that they're doing is making Sunday 
not only the first day of the week, which it always is, but it also is the eighth day of the week prior. And so there's this really interesting relationship between the, or like this, um, this thought about the eighth day that comes out in the way that baptistries are constructed. So if you go to an old church uh, and even some relatively newer church it, churches, and you look at the baptismal fonts, oftentimes they will be octagonal. And the reason for that is that baptism is the entry into the eighth day, which is at the same time, the day of rest, the first day of the week, but it's also the Sabbath day of rest, the seventh day of the week. And so it's both of those things sort of brought in together. So essentially I would say that work at a, at a fundamental level is only exists in order that we might leisure and we do not leisure so that we might work. So it's, I think the wrong framing to say like, yeah, I go on vacation to rest up so I can work more efficiently. It's rather, I work really hard so that I can have a really awesome and restful vacation. Uh, incidentally, I'm, I'm dr- hopping in the car tomorrow to drive to Florida for a, for a two week family vacation. So I'm thinking about that a lot right now. <laughs> that sounds um, very nice. But, but more deeper than that, I mean, I think, you know, the reality is, is that in, in the modern day and, you know, you're, you know, you have a lot of responsibilities at, um, at your uh, day job as do I, and, when we're out, you know, like a lot of stuff doesn't get done, um, precisely because we're responsible for pushing so many balls forward. Um, and I think that part of a, an appropriate relationship with leisure and with rest is acknowledging that yes, things do not get done if I'm there. Um, but if I'm just focused on getting things done, I might not be focusing on the things that are more important than life. The things that leisure can create space for things like time with family, which you could say is your first priority. Leisure is what creates the ability for us to do things like this. You know, it's because we're not at work that we have these conversations. Um, And so, so I think that framing is really important. So I'm really glad you're going to take a full week vacation. Um, I think you should do that a couple of times a year, frankly. Yeah, I think I, I think I might come see you as well. Uh, but yeah, no, I don't think we're disagreeing. I think you're applying uh, a broad sense of leisure. And I think a lot of what I have spent time doing in leisure has been uh, just more unhealthy laziness. And I don't even mean that in a bad sense, but just like, you know, you go hang out with friends from college for a few days and you go get brunch and get drinks and then go somewhere and go to a show and then drink. And that's not, if, if what we're doing right now is leisure, that's not what I meant, I guess, by leisure. Um, like if, if intellectual work is a kind of leisure, then I think we agree. Um, and maybe it's just filling that vacation with a specific t- kind of activity that makes the work worth it rather than makes you dread returning to the work. Um, and I think that's a potentially good answer. Uh, yeah, totally. I, I mean, like, it, like scrolling Instagram is not leisure. Yeah. That's just a waste of time. <laughs> okay, so we have the categories of wasting your time and leisure. And there's something deliberate about leisure that brings meaning to your you working for it in advance. And that's what makes it gratifying. Maybe what makes work ungratifying is wasting the leisure time you have. Maybe that's what I'm running into. Yes, because oftentimes we do waste our leisure on stuff that isn't leisure 
And so then like the, so everything is less fulfilling because like, like I said, we're oriented towards the leisure time. And so when that's not being properly respected, then our whole orientation is off. Sure. And I I do want to move on here, but I think there's kind of a paradox here in my mind. And uh, in this sense, it's because sometimes like uh, when I golf or when we do podcasts like this, or when I have deep conversations with people or read books during my leisure time, I'm actually exerting more work than I do at work. Like my brain feels more alive. I'm more focused. Like for instance, with golf, you're engaged in the game and the wind and the environment uh, and how you're going to play the next shot. And that feels more mentally stimulating, but to call that leisure is kind of bizarre because I've never quite that tuned in at work really. Um, So there is a kind of a paradox there. It's almost as if leisure is more work than work. You know, I think this is, I think it's St. Thomas Aquinas uh, talks about games being the closest approximation in this life to the divine life. Because the divine life is something like everything that God does, he does it for its own sake because he is total and complete and all glorified and all of the things without doing any of the things like creation. And so anytime God acts, it's an act of um, for its own sake. Like there's no other reason behind or motivation behind the actions. And games are kind of like that because um, at least this is why like uh, amateur golf was held in such high esteem for before it became a professional thing, like pretty recently in recent history. Um, Because there's something about that. Like, yeah, like this is, it's for its own sake. Like we're playing a game. Sure. It's It's also glorious. It's one of those sports that's fundamentally peaceful in an amazing way. You just, especially when you walk, instead of use a cart, you just walk through nature, trying to hit a ball into a cup with your friends. And there's a, it's a meditative process, but it's also an incredibly difficult sport. So it combines so many, so many parts of, I think, what is gratifying about life. But not to go too long in the intro, tell me what you've been thinking about, what you've been reading, what's been on your mind. Yeah, so I have been reading at a much slower pace since we finished our 90-day spiritual exercise, during which we were not on any social technology or video platforms or anything. Um, so I have not been reading as much, but I did I did finish one book in the last couple of weeks. I read the first the first book chronologically of the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, which is uh, the magician's nephew. And the reason why I read it is because I happened upon chanced upon really the magicians series from sci-fi, which is based on a trilogy by this guy named Lev Grossman called the magicians. And he bases the kind of fiction world Um, in the magicians called Fillory on Narnia. And that is kind of a pretty wildly connected causal chain. But um, anyway, he makes, or he basically does what Alan Moore does in Watchmen. And he takes very seriously, he asks like, what if magic existed in the real world? And you have to come to grips with like, the sort of darker, more drug dealer, evil side of magic that we don't really see. For example, even in 
um, the Harry Potter series, which is kind of that archetypal battle of good versus evil. There's something like truly evil about Voldemort. You know what I mean? And it's not as arbitrary as like evils of everyday life are, right? Because he's kind of like a Satan figure, but, but in everyday life, evils like somebody tragically getting shot during a drug deal or, you know, getting mugged and, or, or raped or something while going through the, a bad part of town, that sort of arbitrariness to evil, you don't often get in some of the, some of the great magical stories. And I thought that the magicians at least is an attempt at what that would look like. Now I would say that the, uh, the sci-fi series is overly graphic, overly sexual, overly gory, and a bunch of other things. I haven't read the magicians, uh, the books themselves yet, but nonetheless, it's just, it's got me thinking about again, uh, what is, um, what happens when we divorce the stories that we tell too far from the realities in which we live. And I think this is an interesting problem to consider because um, I think that modern people in general suffer the problem of their lives not being reflected in the literature that they are told is great when they grow up. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? It's like the Bible as approachable as it has proven to be in all centuries. There's certain parts of it that it's just like, dude, this isn't my life. Yeah. What are you talking about? And um, I'm just, I'm, I'm interested in, I, I th and I think this is related fundamentally to a need for the religious stories to reinterpret themselves, but also to be reinterpreted in other fiction in a sort of post death of God era. And I think that, you know, there's some really dark stuff that happens in real life. And because we don't understand the idioms and the metaphors, like sometimes we miss that in the Bible. And I think that, um, a whole new wave of stories is going to be able to hopefully come up and show that, that truly archetypal battle of good versus evil in a way that still makes sense to, to modern people. And I would argue that, that that's like one of the things that Alan Moore gets sort of wrong in Watchmen is that good doesn't win in the end. Uh huh. That's a that's a very interesting set of ideas. Uh, what something my roommates criticized often, um, and I think we've pointed this out in the podcast, is how all of the sort of contemporary movies are copies of old movies, and then of these, the the ones that get repeated the most are like the superhero movies, and they are fascinatingly like what Marvel does and what DC does is fascinatingly divorced from our lives. Um, I don't, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure how to take this further other than to say, I guess I, I try in my own life to overcorrect the other direction. Um, I guess I've learned to try to overcorrect, correct. And I've tried to see how the story can still apply to my life and like a very, um, very deliberate process. So trying to make the whole story that's completely unreal into a metaphor and then trying to see that metaphor in an archetypal sense in my life. It takes like two abstractions for you to empathize with the characters in these movies. And that is an interesting divorce because I think sort of the original intention of theater, uh, especially in the Greek sense, that version of something that brings you to a catharsis is to 
immediately and viscerally feel as the as the protagonist in the story does or the characters in the story does and so you relate to them uh, like by intuition not by a process of intellection and i think now we have to have an abstraction between the plot of a story we watch and the application of the themes therein to our lives that is a kind of divorce from what art is meant to be i think it's meant to impact on a level that's not um something that you're simply reasoning about well and we've gender we've almost almost truly lost the ability to do that abstraction well part of the reason why a book like the iliad reaches the status that it does is that it's really not so hard if you try to understand achilles like really understand him and his pain um and ultimately the decision that he faces between long life and being forgotten or dying before the walls of Troy and being immortal, at least in memory. And I I think that some of these, this is, I mean, this is precisely what has been called the meaning crisis of modern people is that we, we, there's something that doesn't quite, we, we can't quite get from Achilles to ourselves, or we can't quite get from, you know, Peter, the apostle betraying Christ and then becoming the rock upon which the church is built. Like we can't, like, how do we connect that to ourselves? Like, that's not my life. You know, I don't wit- witness the miracles and, and then fall short and then, and then bring it back together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think f- frankly, th- this little segue has reawakened me to the idea that I think that we should probably have a great works discussion on Alan Moore's The Watchmen. Um, I think that there's a really interesting sort of even like maybe comparative analysis that we could do between Watchmen and say the Iliad. I have been, uh, I have said for a long time that I think that the Iliad is best understood as a superhero book because that's sort of Uh, what it is. Um, And I (laughs) I think we could have a lot of fun with, with um, Homer's version of superheroes in the real world and Alan Moore's version of superheroes in the real world. Yeah, and then maybe even what are superheroes in our world now, which I would say are probably athletes, which is weird enough. Definitely, definitely. Okay, so um, we're going to dive right into the Euthyphro. Um, First, just wanted to announce uh, Cryptosophy is now officially on Instagram and on Twitter. I run the Twitter. (laughs) Um, So it's at Cryptosophy FM on both platforms. Um, would really appreciate um, a follow. And, you know, I think, you know, we've, we've got our telegram, we've got our discord server. Um, you can reach to us, reach, reach out to us by email, but I think probably Instagram and Twitter are the lowest friction ways. So any questions, thoughts, um, points that we missed or places where you disagree with us, um, please, uh, please feel free to call that out in comments or direct messages. Um, we really are excited to, to enter the dialogue with you. Yeah, and maybe we can do a segment in this initial period too, where we can talk about the last great works comments or whatever episode type it was that we got on those platforms. So we'll definitely be interacting with those uh, comments, questions, and thoughts live in some format. That's perfect. And all those links um, along with uh, the link to our link tree um, will be found in the description. Um, But just uh, you can also just hit it at cryptosophy.fm. That'll redirect you to the link tree um, and to everything. So cryptosophy.fm. 
without further ado, Max, do you want to hit us with a preliminary summary of the Euthyphro and then we can go from there? Yeah, I, uh, I did. I came up with a, a fake word for this dialogue and it's a euphemism instead of a euphemism. And a euphemism is when you claim knowledge of the divine and when someone tries to call you on it, you simply say you're busy and walk away. <laughs> Any situation in which that occurs. Um, but the Euthyphro, it's kind of putting the cart before the horse. So Socrates, it, Socrates is outside of the court and he's putting on trial, uh, been put on trial for um, making false gods and corrupting the youth of the city. And that's where he meets Euthyphro, which is the second character. And Euthyphro has come to the court to put his dad um, on trial for murdering a slave who had murdered another slave. And it comes out through the dialogue that his dad didn't actually. Um, oh, and Euthyphro is a, a priest of some sort or a religious figure. I think he is a priest, isn't it? Yeah, he is. Uh, I think that that's mostly embedded in his name. Um, as like the high priest but then we get in the dialogue these little snippets about how knowledgeable he is about piety at, through his priesthood yeah and I, I kept trying to make this as real world as possible so the philosopher socrates bumps into the high priest outside the court one is going to convict someone and one is going to be convicted um, and that's socrates and since euthyphro is putting his dad on trial which is kind of wild and it comes out, what happened is um, a, one, of, one of Euthyphro's servants, I think, killed another servant in a drunken rage. And his father tied the servant up and put him in a ditch. And uh, while, while he went to Athens to get a consultation from a religious figure about what he should do in this situation, that's the right thing to do. But while the servant who had killed the other servants in the ditch, he dies. And so Euthyphro is coming to court to uh, indict his father on the charge of murder of this slave. And he's very, very arrogant about this, very sure that he's doing the divine and right thing. And so the dialogue, I think I found it moves in about three arguments uh, where Socrates starts to question Euthyphro on what is piety in the face of, you must have such a great knowledge of what piety is if you're going to put your own father on trial, like you must have absolute knowledge of uh, what the gods want and what is just. If you're if you're going to convict your own father of what seems to be an accidental murder, and this and is what, important too, because underneath um, Socrates's charge that he's going to face of atheism is really a charge of impiety more broadly. Um, I believe that. Yeah. That. In like the, the specific court that they're at is a court that tries charges specifically of impiety. And so it's in, in Athens, there's a whole category of crimes that fall in this kind of religious impious sense. One of them is murder because there's like a pollution that happens as a result, a religious pollution that happens as a result of murder. And then the other one, well, atheism, that's um, a little bit more clear. And so precisely... Yeah. Socrates needs to know or wants to know from somebody who claims to be wise in these matters, what is piety so that he can help himself in his coming trial. Yeah. And that's definitely how he frames it. And there is, there's, there is a question of Socratic irony or um, there's always a question of how genuine Socrates is being um, and certain things he says, because once you get to the apology, which is Socrates defense, 
he doesn't necessarily rely on this dialogue at all. Um, so it's almost as if Socrates knows in the beginning that Euthyphro doesn't have the knowledge he claims. And so his call for help there um, might be somewhat ironic in a Socratic sense, um, which is, it's this constant sense of, oh, of course, you know, you're the high priest, you're convicting your father, like, teach me, please teach me. And that's how all Socratic dialogues work, too. It's, a, it's a, an attempt to reason from a position of absolute humility, regardless of the fact that we kind of know by reading the dialogue that Socrates knows where the conversation's going before he even enters it. He knows where at least the next section of the argument's going. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think I let's hit let's finish our summary, but I would like to come back to this question of Socratic irony. Is Socrates genuine? Another way of phrasing that question is, is Socrates just an asshole? (laughs) And I think we should I think we should dwell on that a little bit. So so let's keep going for through our summary. Okay, perfect. Well, the dialogue moves through. I mean, it's centered around the question of what is uh, the pious? uh, What is piety? And I think they move through. Virtually, I had it at three movements, um, but it's originally the definition is uh, piety is what is loved by the gods. And Socrates morphs that definition to being piety is that which all of the gods love and impiety is that all the gods hate uh, because the gods appear to disagree with one another. And then we move into a switch between something being pious in itself versus being pious because it is affected by the gods or their love. Um, And I think finally, we come all the way full circle through that argument back to piety is what the gods love through sacrifice. And that seems to be the first argument. And Socrates asks him one more time at the end. And Euthyphro says, can't you see I'm busy? I have to go. And it ends all in all in about 20 pages. So there's one preliminary step before they even get to what Socrates will accept as a definition. Uh-huh. And, and Socrates asks Euthyphro the first time, what is, what is the pious? What is piety? And Euthyphro responds by saying that, which I am doing now charging uh-huh. my father for murder um, of, or for a wrongful murder. And this is, I think the, the one of the first time, there's a reason that the Euthyphro is, the like if you get if you buy a collection of plato's complete works almost for sure the euthyphro is going to be the first one in it and that's more or less been the standard since the renaissance when we started publishing complete works of um of plato and one of the reasons why is because you actually get a really interesting set of philosophical ground rules for what's allowed in dialogue what's not allowed in dialogue what are useful responses and what are useless responses? And the first, this is a, and this will, this will be a recurring theme throughout the Socratic dialogues, but even throughout the rest of them as well, um, throughout all of Plato's works. Um, this idea that examples of something are not good enough to tell me what the something is, right? So when Socrates asks, hey, what is piety? You can't just give him an example of a pious action and claim that that is um, a good example or is, is a definition of piety. Uh, I'm yeah. trying to think of like a good contemporary case. Cause I feel like in, in standard conversation, we sort of do this all the time where we, somebody asks you for a, 
definition of something or they ask you what something is, we give an we give an example. And then what we start figuring out is like we argue by analogy between our example and the in the present situation about whether or not something is what it is what it is. Um, if you can come up with an example off of the top of your head, uh, that would be that'd be stellar. Uh, but if not, it gets if not, it gets to the point that essentially you just have to learn as an interlocutor that you're not allowed to give examples because they don't, an example itself does not explain why an example is an example. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing too, is you can't give a single example, I think would be the rule. So you can give an example, but Socrates usually gives like six or seven examples in a row, which can feel very redundant. Um, but he'll say like the, the good of the horse breeder is the breeding of good horses. Do you agree? And then he'll give like five more occupations. So I think there, there's always an attempt at the general, but if you use an example, it has to be layered with examples in order to construct the premise. So you can't argue from a single example. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Um, and and that's interesting too because this this notion of example is is tied up pretty closely with our notions of cause, right? We would say that an example is caused to be an example of of, of a definition, and this is kind of precisely what the the comment about um, whether or not the the question about affect in in relation to piety is something pious because it is loved by the gods or is it loved by the gods for some other property and thus it becomes uh, becomes pious and yeah. and this 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 notion itself it's like i said it can it can feel incredibly um it feels like we're playing language games often, but it's these language games that actually deliver to us, you know, the, the great genius of not only Plato, but all of Greek thought, this hyper precision um, about things like what is a definition? What is an example that really light up for the first time, the Western spirit? Sure. And I think in that sense too, it feels very much like math class where you can't exactly see when you're a student, what's being constructed. But by going through the process of reasoning, you end up with a set of philosophical tools and the dialogue can be redundant and boring and difficult because it's giving you those tools. So, I mean, whether it's an argument from example or what is circular reasoning or what is causation or what is like, what is attribution from something else, um, all, of, all of that training's mixed into a dialogue. And the dialogue is kind of like a way of playing at a philosophical conversation that would be like if you put this conversation into a paper form, it would be very boring, but this is kind of like the theater of philosophy that Plato creates. Um, it, it's a kind of an artistic attempt at the very strict and precise tools of logic. And that's, I think that's what Plato is doing. And the youth of is great because it's definitely like a, like a practice lap at philosophy. So here's, here's some ground rules and tools to work through them, uh, to work through any kind of philosophical conversation. And I think, yeah, the process of Socratic reasoning is also very much about not taking anything someone says at face value as well. So you try to really figure out what's going on at every point in a discussion. So if you say what is pious is being loved by the gods, then we have to think about um, 
when we love something, does that ever make it another thing? And we have to go, we have to try to prove that, you know, in other instances to get it established. So these points I think are worth diving into in some more detail. Um, so if you don't mind, I know you, Max, have prepared some some comments on maybe the like societal implications of the Euthyphro and like the relationships that the characters play to um, kind of like societal, uh, I don't know, stereotypes. Um, but I've got some prepared some more like kind of nitty gritty going into some of the sort of yes. grammar of the philosophy here. So I so think we must do yours first. <laughs> okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. So we've, we've kind of been touching on this point that this definitions versus examples things. Um, and Euthyphro is, is wrong to say that that which I am doing now is pious um, it's not an, it's not a definition, like I said, because the definition does not explain why the example is an example, but yeah. rather a it's definition. Also, it, it doesn't extrapolate either. Right. Right. Cause you can't look at Euthyphro's action and then say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I know what you're doing is pious. Therefore I know that these other seven actions are pious. Yes. Yeah, and in the it, frame of the dialogue, I know that I can prove that I am innocent in being impious, given your definition in your particular instance. Um, yeah, but he goes exactly. back to, I asked you what piety was, not what are you doing right now? Right, right, totally. And, and this kind of introduces already when we're even talking about things as basic as what's the difference between a definition is, or an example, we have a, a why question and a causal link that is it is entered into uh, into the question, it, like what it, what Euthyphro should have said was something like, "What I am doing now is pious because it is a thing which is loved by the gods," which is to say that it is caused to be pious because it is loved by the gods. And therefore, yeah. it's the love of the gods that's causing my action to be pious. Exactly. And thus, and we actually counter- can understand this. We can understand this causal link between some definition that causes examples to precisely be examples. Interesting. Okay. Can you, now I'm getting lost in Socratic dialogue. So, can you go so further on that? I'll go. So, so that's that's the kind of just the basic definition versus example. And, and like the reason why we're kind of belaboring this point, this is kind of boring to talk about and to say again and again, and it, it, it comes off that way in the Euthyphro as well. But this is a recurring theme in, in all of the, the early Socratic. So the Socratic dialogues uh, go from uh, Euthyphro. Um, oh gosh, what is their order? Euthyphro, Credo, Phaedo, and Apology. So it's, it goes Euthyphro, Apology, Credo, Phaedo. And those four together, kind of collectively known as the last days of Socrates, sort of serve as like an introductory work to Plato. And uh-huh. in, in all of those cases, we kind of have, perhaps the exception of the apology, but there's some overlap. This sort of question of, okay, I have something that I'm curious about. What is piety? And then we go through a dialogue and we learn some stuff about how philosophy works and how language works. And then it breaks down and we actually, at the end of the dialogue, have no idea what piety is. Uh, The same thing happens again in a pretty substantial way in the credo, I think, um, which is about laws and 
essentially what is um, what is virtue with respect. Um, no, that's no. The virtue is the mino, but like the question of like what is the what is the right relationship between between laws and so forth, and we end up in all cases in this state of I'm very confused, and and Plato is doing this on purpose because it's in this confusion that we are actually start to learn something. So even though it's boring, um, it's worth belaboring because every Platonic book, whether it's the Republic, what is justice, the Symposium, what is love, the Mino what is virtue? These are definitional questions. And uh, part of the philosophical leap that is made in ancient Greece is this, we're not content with mere myths and we're not content with mere examples, which is what the myths sort of were thought to be. Yeah. We have to get to the definitions. Yeah. And I do want to add there, and we will go back to this at the end. We're also not content with what our politicians and authorities do or claim which I think is, I mean, on a deeper level, why Socrates gets put to death. But we don't even believe the high priests when they tell, tell us they know what piety is. They have to prove it now, um, which is interesting. You know, this, it, in the boredom, I think what sustains me often is realizing how rebellious the writing is. Or imminently modern is maybe another way to think about it. Sure. It's, it, there's, I think it's, it's a misnomer in some sense to think of the ancients and then the medievals and then the moderns and then the contemporaries, right? There's, it seems to me that a, if a deep study of the ancients reveals that many of the things that we hold to as modern, include a, including this sort of contrarian um, skepticism, which is a very modern idea. And yet here it is in you know, fourth century BC Athens um, <laughs> on display for us. So, so moving along. So again, definitions versus examples, just beat it into your head. When somebody asks you a question, they often think they're asking for an example, but really they're asking for definitions. There's also in the Euthyphro, the next sort of philosophical kind of like vocab words that we get to use are three of them kind species and difference and there's a number of different synonyms for all of these things so so different kinds might also be what we would call uh uh, uh i don't I, in in latin g-e-n-u-s um oh, so genus. genus yeah yeah and um, then also category yeah category also works um species is pretty clear like um it's it's worth noting though that two different species are of the same kind and so the question is well if both species are of the same kind what's the difference between the two of them and so these three words are actually uh important and i'm going to um give an example first of, <laughs> uh, of this particular phenomenon, because uh, I think it will elucidate the point, And then we will, um, we'll go back to the, 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 the definition uh, to begin with. So let's look at, or let's think about um, the odd numbers. We could say that odd numbers are a species of numbers that differ from the even numbers. And the way in which they differ is that the odd numbers are not evenly divided by two, while the evens are. 
And it's Wait. important. Okay, go ahead. I thought even was a category of numbers or a kind of number. So not a species of number. So in this case, <laughs> no, no, number is the kind and even and odd are the species. And what is the difference? <laughs> the difference so, between the numbers plus or minus. <laughs> well, right. No, I mean, it, but there is a real difference. The difference between the odds is that the odds cannot be evenly divided by two but the evens can. And therefore I have some difference through which I can identify one species from another within a kind. Okay. So this is more methodological than like being descriptive. Correct. Correct. Okay. And this, this point, the reason why it's, um, it, this is sort of preliminary. I forget exactly the context that they use. They, cause they use the example of even numbers, in the euthyphro and i'm thinking that it's because they're 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 starting to talk about uh the affect stuff and this is sort of like the preliminary to understanding what does it mean for something to be affected does that cause real different change uh, and we'll get there. So just another quick example in a more general form of this kind species difference stuff um, so let's suppose, um, and I'm reading from some notes that I've taken here, so don't think that I uh, have this all memorized, but um, so let's, let's suppose there's uh, two species within the same kind of number, and we'll call one species X, and we'll call the second species Y. And if we define species X as all those numbers, which can be evenly divided by two, so we know at least for species X, we're talking about the even numbers. But if we define species Y as all of the numbers that do not have the digit zero, two, four, or six in its ones place, it turns out that we've just come up with another way of describing the kind of evens. And so it turns out that species X and species Y, there's not a difference between them. Um, species Y is a subspecies of species X. Uh, so you could actually, you would say that there, well, it's, it's a prop, it's a, it's, it's a full, it's a, it's, it is a subset, but it's all of them because all odd numbers do not end in zero, two, four, six, or eight, just okay. like all odd numbers cannot be evenly divided by two or can be evenly, uh, yeah, cannot be evenly divided by two. Uh, yeah. um, so we've just found two ways of just defining the odd numbers. Um, and so they're not different species. And uh, yeah, so that, that's kind of, if you remember the, the precise way in which uh, even numbers and kind and difference come up in the dialogue, uh, feel free to, to chime in on that. <laughs> Socrates' mathematical examples were always the most difficult for me, to be honest. Well, because the, they, the, they're not the, described the, well or translated well. And yeah, like they call it the even and the odd. And it's like, oh, he's talking about weird things. Okay, so is it, I mean, as you're seeing this, this is the first methodology of definition. There's kinds, there's species, there's difference. And then yes. there's, and then the second one is affected by or in itself of, if that makes sense. Yeah, certainly. So, so it's definition given external forces would be the second kind of methodology. Because oftentimes, I mean, I don't know about you, but I can remember at least in like ethics bowl sort of settings when we would be asked if we're asserting that something is different from another thing, 
one of the first questions that would be asked is, is it a difference in kind or is it a difference in degree? Yeah. Which is to say, right, like the, the even numbers differ from the odd numbers in degree, right? There's, there are still numbers, um, but like blocks differ in kind from numbers, right? Because they're, one, one is blocks and the other are numbers. Okay. So this leads though to this discussion of qualities and properties versus essence. And it's, a, it's, it's important to note that it's actually a point of causality that causes Euthyphro's second definition of piety to break down. Cause he says, the second definition is that which is pious is that which is loved by all the gods. And thus the, the, the natural question after that is, well, is it loved by the gods because it's pious or is it on account of some other property that the gods love it and that makes it, um, that makes it pious? And um, the answer is no. In the definition, it's clear. It's the being loved by the gods is what makes it pious. Um, but unfortunately, then you have to ask, well, well, what is it um, on account of that it is loved by the gods? And it turns out that it has to be some second property that causes it to be loved by the gods. And thus, this turns out, this, this other property turns out to be what real piety is. And so, like, real, the real source of piety is, is almost behind the gods, because whether or not the gods are there to love the thing on account of this property is almost moot to the definition. Um, and thus, you can say, in what we were just talking about in terms of kind, degree, and difference, piety is no different than that other property. Therefore, that which is pious is that which is loved by all the gods cannot be the definition, but a description merely of the property that are shared by all things, but it's only incidental and it's not essential. And what this ultimately leads us to is that that second definition, that's why the second de definition totally breaks down. Um, it's, it's a really nuanced argument here, um, but it's important because we have to ask, why is it that a species is different from another species? Well, it's on account of a real difference. And it turns out that in, the, in what's being discussed here about piety, we can't identify a real difference. Um, and thus, we're only looking at things that are uh, incidental, incidentally yeah. shared, but not essentially shared. Yes. And then here, the move that Euthyphro makes is he's going to shift it away from the definition of what the gods love altogether, because that was an argument. So it's not just that one god loves something, therefore it's pious, it has to be all of them. And you've shown how that breaks down. Now what Euthyphro tries to do is to make it about the relationship between what the human beings sacrifice and pray and what the gods gain from it. So he shifts the argument from the definition of piety to uh, the category of action that humans have in relationship to the god, which then also becomes circular back to the previous argument you've just made. Yeah, totally, totally. Well, and, and while we're here, I just, I wanted to throw in one more because this, the example of a chair is used in the Euthyphro and they're talking about the carriedness of the chair. And it's really easy to get kind of like, not lost, but like ask yourself, you kind of find yourself asking, what the hell are they talking about a chair for? And um, well, it, it's, 
It turns out that when you say that something is caused, you're really talking about change at a deeper level. Um, the thing, the, the definition that informs an example, like there's something that's really going on there. And I use that word really like um, in, in italics. And it's not to say that all change is cause, in, at least in this deeper sense that I'm trying to use the word, because some changes are merely changes of what you might call state or what you might call mode. Um, th those are sort of more modern um, philosophical terms that the scholastics introduced in the Middle Ages. And so Plato does not use these words, but he describes them. And he's describing them specifically here about the example of the chair, which is being carried. A carried chair is still just a chair, right? The, the, the being affected such that it is being carried, the carriedness of the chair doesn't stop it from being a chair. It's just undergoing some sort of state change, right? When it goes yeah. from being uncarried to being carried. And like, again, to use this more modern philosophical language, we can talk about this as modal change and precisely not essential change. Um, you know, an essential change would be more along the lines of, you know, I am going to change this plant into a salad by putting croutons and dressing and cheese on it and putting it into a bowl. Um, and that's an essential change, right? A plant became a salad. But when I move the salad from one side of the table to the other, it's still a salad, right? Yes. Its location is what has changed. And this, this ties us all the way back to what we were talking about earlier with on account of what difference are species said to be different from one another. And it gives <laughs> us already this indication that modal or what you might call qualitative difference isn't enough to talk yeah. about um, the difference between species. We're talking about some things that are far more essential. Um, so unfortunately, about, go ahead. I was, I was thinking about how, how people like absolutely love and adore someone and they break up with them and they're no longer their significant other. And now suddenly they become a different species to them. Um, but the change of breaking up with them was not essential. Um, just, just because you're no longer dating them doesn't mean their nature as a being changed. And I was just thinking of a very contemporary way that people might use this fallacy. <laughs> Precisely. It's your um, relationship it, to the, to the person is what has changed. It's change, the, it, it's the, it's yes. the, mo, it's the but, location but, of the salad. That's what's yes. changing. But you tend, a lot of people tend to change the essential definition of them after that, when really it's just a relational change. So I think she's a bad person now because we've broken up, but in actuality, the, it is the same species. Your relationship to it does not change who they were. I don't know. It's, it's something I try to do in these is to try to bring in examples that make, make them make sense to me. Totally. <laughs> she's not a bad person because she's not still your girlfriend. I mean, I'm content to talk about salads. So <laughs> we can go back to salads. <laughs> so all of that, like, as I'm kind of listening to myself talk, it sounded a lot better when it was notes on my note page. And oh, it didn't sound quite as good um, in this audio format. Um, 
I think what I'm trying to get at though is that the Euthyphro, if you really pay attention to the arguments, and frankly, I read it a couple of weeks ago when I took these notes, and so I don't have like the good, like the good quotes, like really um, top of mind. But what I would say is that it's no accident that editors of Plato have been putting the Euthyphro first um, for centuries in in the collected works of Plato, and it's precisely because these sorts of of talking points. The difference between the difference between species, uh, what is a kind in relationship to a species, these these uh, considerations about um, modal or qualitative affected changes versus essential changes, you can't really do philosophy without having some sort of grounding in this sort of stuff, um, to to speak in sort of a banal way, and you know it's. I've been thinking about this a lot because I've always, I, or I've been more and more wondering or, or positing that education is something that one can do on, on your own. You, one can do it on one's own. And if you just, if you read the books closely, then you can pick up all of these things. Um, but that's not to say that we shouldn't follow the wisdom of other people. And in Plato, it's kind of trivial because no work of Plato is what someone would consider difficult, maybe laws or something, but like for in general, like if you can read and pay attention to a dialogue, like you're going to understand at least where the characters are going with their arguments. Even if you don't quite understand where Plato, the playwright is going, because there's kind of like a veil intentionally between the characters and the author. Nonetheless, these tools are critical to being able to enter into these dialogues with the other interlocutors. Because when Socrates is going to object, he's going to object usually on the basis of one of the four things that we've just mentioned. Like you've, you've mentioned a definition, not, a, not an example. Yeah. We're talking about different kinds and you're talking about them as if they're different species or you're talking about two different species, but claiming they have no difference or... At well, You're talking also, about modal change, not essential change. And so it's like, yeah. these are Socrates's tools to dismantling his opponents. And also, I think, um, I think we have the same edition. Page 15, you get, uh, I don't know, I guess, bimodal species or categories, species within species, where, um, where there is shame, there is also fear. Uh, but where, or where there is fear, there is also shame. Um, those are two things too so these these things also gain different kinds of characteristics because they interact in different ways if that makes sense they become even more complicated than that ground set of tools totally like you can draw venn diagrams with all of these things yeah and you could say that you know there are two species that are of the same kind but there's like a subspecies that they are yeah of different or even of the same but different from a third thing yeah and in the fear shame one uh there's a species in which the other species always is present and then there's a species in which the other can exist on its own without the other species um the one being contained within the other so yeah i think with that one he says um where there is where there is shame, there is also fear. For there is anyone in feeling shame and embarrassment at anything, does not also at the same does he not also at the same time fear the dread of his reputation being ruined? 
So there's, there's situations where you are just afraid. Um, but every time you feel shame, you are also afraid of losing your reputation. So wherever there is shame, there is fear. But wherever there is fear, there isn't shame. And that's a, that's a more complicated version of species than what we've laid out. I agree with you. What do we want to do with these tools we've laid out? The groundwork of the Socratic dialogue. What does that give you as well, in terms of like being a thinking person? Well, these, well I think there's species, a real question. Differences. How would we how would we bring this out? Well, I think there's a real question of like going back to the is Socrates an asshole? Socratic irony. Like there's a real question about the humanity of these tools. Right? Because I mean, like, even as I'm, I'm trying to really pay attention to the words that I'm talking about, and like in that last section where I was going through these things, kind, species, definition, difference, they are some, in some sense, they're in some sense very approachable because like you can use like quick examples, like even versus odd numbers or salads versus plants. But in some sense, like we're doing something very counterintuitive or counter the way that human reason works. I would, and, I would describe that as explaining the joke. Yeah. Like we all know what a logical sentence sounds like, but when you start to unpack them, it's not funny anymore. Right. Right. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a deeper problem than that, dude, because like the scientific method in general is basically a way to hack the human inability to really understand things. Yeah. No, it's like certainly. it's like we are going to trick ourselves into being right yeah and like that is how the scientific method works like that, that's why the great brilliance behind double blind experiments like you basically take the human intellect out of reason and then you get to put it back in at the end and it turns out that that's the best way to reason or and one of the most the, Socra the socratic method as like a precursor it's like the fetus of the scientific method. Absolutely. 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 But then there's the question, like there's something sort of, like you said, it's like explaining the joke, like real humans don't do that. Yeah. So precisely what are we doing here? What is the craft of philosophy? Yes. <laughs> that is, it is a great question. And I think in that sense, just to keep going with the bad metaphor, it's, it's to be comedians. So we explain the joke so that when we tell the joke, it's funny. Or when we tell new jokes, it's funny. It's like we practice being right in this very redundant and sometimes ridiculous way, breaking things down into kinds and differences and species and their interactions and their relationships and their definitions and trying to keep that in place over the course of a chain of reasoning so that when we go to reason in real life, it's funny or it actually works or it actually makes sense in accordance to some rule. I think, it, I mean, in some sense, it's, it's an attempt to make the, the practice of living meaningful by digging into what makes all the meaning work on kind of a, you know, a very intricate and detailed, often boring level. So it's kind of like, and, and this seems to make sense to me too, like it's kind of like what we're doing here in the Euthyphro is the countless hours of practicing the piano yeah. that then result in the beautiful performance in front of 10,000 people. 
Exactly. When Mo yeah, when someone plays a Mozart piece, they don't think C major when they play that chord. Um, but at some time they had to get into this what is C major and how does that relate to chord progressions and whatever all of the intricate details. But when they do that, since they've done all of the detailed prep, when they go to play the piano, um, it's far more beautiful than it would have been. So it's kind of like the practice of reason before reason takes place, I think. Well, and it's that that sort of ability to practice it is what makes it so glorious when you witness it, um, you know, like really playing out. Like, I mean, I don't know, when was the last time, can you remember being really convinced by someone and changing your mind on account of the way that oh. they presented an argument? Oh, yeah, constantly. It's pretty remarkable to, to have it happen to you. Um, it is. And it's, and it's precisely on account of the tools like these that, um, that that sort of convincing is able to happen. I mean, in addition with a bunch of other rhetorical tactics. Yeah, I think it's also, in some sense, it's also a way of healing from, the, from bad reasoning. And I guess we could bring this into like a more inner, like internal psychological dialogue you could have with yourself. But you could start with like, my relationship with this person is very bad. And people usually sit there and then they're just upset because their relationship's bad or something made their relationship bad. But the process of dialogue can also be healing in this sense because you go, what do I mean by bad? And what makes the bad bad? And what, what therefore makes the good friendship good? You know, I feel like there's also something very redemptive about this. It's sort of when you start picking away at things, you realize they don't have the gravity they once had in the way you were using them. And I think that's also a way of becoming a more sophisticated person um, or maybe even a more balanced person in your life. Things don't become so absolute as like, I know what the pious is. Um, they become sort of more glimpses of what the pious are, were in practical situations. And so there's, you, you lose that absolute sense of uh, guilt and shame or that absolute sense of victory and gratification, but you trade it for a sophisticated embrace of the complexity of situations. Yeah, well, and this is a point that I think is worth dwelling on a little bit because things are complex and we oftentimes do ourselves a great disservice by simplifying things too much. And one of the simplest ways that we simplify things <laughs> is that we sort of assert that wherever we happen to be in our reason, like our, in our reasoning chain, um, it might as well be the capital T truth because it's as far as we've gotten at this point. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that, that the Socratic method does that, that Socrates does over and over again, and even here in dialogues where we have multiple working definitions that we're going, like we never get a suitable working definition. We do in other dialogues get a suitable working definition from which a new conversation is able to spring forth. We don't get one of those in the Euthyphro. But one of the things that, that happens when you start viewing truth not as a particular arrivable, like a, a, a place that you can arrive at and like ever be done with, I think what the Socratic method asserts is that the capital T truth is sort of like the limit of an asymptote. And your working definitions, well, they just get you closer. And they yeah. get you closer and they get you closer at high efficiency. 
but it's never exactly the capital T truth. There is always that gap between the form and your definition. And in some sense, there has to be, right? Because insofar as the forms dwell in the heavens, right? Or in the world of the forms or wherever it is, like your definition, insofar as it's being articulated here in the world of matter is already corrupted in some sense, right? Like any triangle you can, right. Any triangle you can draw is not a three-sided figure whose interior angles add up to 180 degrees, right? Because not all of your lines are going to be perfectly straight lines. None of your lines are going to have infinite infinitesimal, uh, infinitely thin thickness, and none of your angles are going to be exactly uh, adding to 180. So every attempt at a definition, like the definition in some sense lives in this world way off, and your attempt at an example is always working, so to speak. And I think I would come at that from the other angle, because I think you're coming at it from abstraction. I would say the the complexity of the world is so complex that every attempt at capturing what's true therein can only be a pro- an approximation given that complexity. Um, you can even, you can do that just simply with geometry as you did, but you can't, you know, people try to do that with societies. Um, you can never grasp the full capital T truth. You can only get better and better at uh, the way that you think and the information that you gather about a certain instance and often for a certain outcome. But yeah, um, the world's simply too complicated to arrive at capital T truths. And so the Socratic method, um, you know, there's argument from authority, argument from emotion, um, logos, ethos, pathos, the traditional Greek rhetorical styles. But I would call the Socratic method argument from humility, which goes, I know I can't know, but what would be an incremental step in the direction of a better model for uh, how I understand a thing? And then how do I live based off that best approximation? Max, I love this. And this is one of the reasons why I love Socrates so much and why I, in, I cannot get on board with the cynical view that Socrates is just an asshole. No, there's no chance. There's no chance. I think that there was, when we were younger readers of these dialogues, <laughs> yeah. it's easier to like get away with that sort of thinking. And I think, and, and frankly, I do think that Plato does that on purpose. You know, he is a brilliant playwright and there's a whole discussion to be had about whether or not Plato is a playwright or a philosopher. Um, I tend to say that he is the former and thus maybe it's a, maybe it's a whole conversation for another time, but the question then, like the reason why a, a, a first-time reader is able to kind of get away with like, oh yeah, Socratic irony. He's just being disingenuous. He's not actually pursuing the truth. And gosh, in the apology, he asks for free dinner as his punishment for having been found guilty of uh, corrupting the youth and um, being uh, being an atheist. And I just, at the end of the day, it's, it's this, this conversation that we're having is the, re, is, the, is the real heart of it. The reason why Socrates has to be ironic in every case, and particularly here when he's confronting um, somebody who's like an, a stereotypical or an archetypal example of Athenian uh, religious nobility, or whether it's like one of the craftsmen or one of the, one of the tra- tra- tragedians, whatever, 
is precisely this point. It's that the truth with a capital T is not only too complex to approach, but it's something that in our physical mortal forms, we can't even yeah. approach, right? Exactly. There's, there's a deeply religious, um, and, and you could, to use the Christian language, like there's a beatific vision of the truth that Socrates holds where one must die and be reborn before ever the truth can actually be grasped again in its fullness. And the more religious side of me really is in love with that. Um, because I think that most modern people look at religion and they see not that at all, right? They see dogma, they see doctrine, they say, you must, thou shalt on these things. And I think that there's a real distinction that has to be drawn between what you could call dogma and what you might call subscription to dogmatic principles, Right. Um, In some sense, one way of looking at Catholic dogmas or Christian dogmas specifically is not as a full expression of a capital T truth, but as a borderline beyond which the capital T truth must be. And that gets us right to what we were discussing earlier with the, the theory about asymptotes and that each attempt is just getting us closer and closer. The the dogma just says that, oh, the asymptote is at least here. But it doesn't ever exhaust the fullness of the truth underneath. Definitely. Yeah. And I think we got to we got to this a bit in the animal farm conversation as well, which is anyone the the people who claim to know before any conversation has happened. Uh, those are the people who have to exit the dialogue immediately, as Christopher Hitchens would say. Um, it's those like you, the fro. And, and honestly, this is what makes the dialogue so beautiful to me. There are so many people, especially in this moment in history, who are claiming absolute knowledge of the just. And those are the people who are immediately out of the conversation. Those are the dogmatists. And I think that's so funny, too, because... Um, you would say people criticize religion that way, but I think this is more of a a perennial and universal concept. And it's those who claim the capital T truth are usually the ones who understand it the least. And I think that's where Socratic irony comes from. And he's making that ironic, not just in the dialogue, but about society itself. I mean, he's talking to a high priest who doesn't know what piety is, but is about to kill his father because he claims to know what piety is. Like that's what civilization is. The attempt at philosophy is to break down that certainty and to live a life uh, within the incremental progress that you can make. Another way to articulate this is to say that philosophy is not at all about the answers, but it's about the questions. Yeah, exactly. Which is part of what makes it so frustrating or tantalizing, you know? Oh, yeah. And, And also, I mean... It's also, I think you have to have a sense of humor as a philosopher too. And I think Plato does as well. Um, I think there's something about the ironic, um, the, or how about the unironic, the humorless and the certain or dogmatic person uh, that is the, the character Euthyphro in this. And the philosopher is Socrates and the way in which you most antagonize that character is simply to ask him questions, which is beautiful, I think, in and of itself. 
Yeah, there's that great G.K. Chesterton quote that I think we brought up on our last call too. They the angels fly because they take them take themselves lightly. Yeah, the philosophers seem to be much like the angels. The good version. Um, the good. The good <laughs> versions. Yeah, and and there's. I mean, I think it's worth bringing up too. Like there are a lot of people that don't that have read these books and yet don't embody their fundamental spirit. And I do think that that's problematic. I mean, I can remember, I I remember this vividly, Max, I was in, I was a senior in, in high school. I was going into my freshman year. Uh, I was going to study philosophy classics. Um, And my, uh, one of my, a friend of mine who is uh, a couple of years older than me, maybe four years older than me, a kind of a mentor figure. He was just graduating from Xavier with a philosophy degree. Um, and he, I can remember we were working, we were, we both worked for the same church and we were moving antiques from a warehouse that were being purchased for our church. And he told me that you need to read the apology before you go study philosophy at Xavier, because we absolutely do not need more academics. We yeah. need more, we need more philosophers and i i think that at least as a younger younger person i was very much on the philosophy is about being right and it's about arguing it's about winning arguments (laughs) and i never really learned that lesson even through i read the apology like he said and i studied philosophy at xavier for four years i still never quite learned that it wasn't about being right until it was almost too late. It was our, it was our Nietzsche seminar when I finally feel like I learned the lesson that there's, what do you mean? I I don't know anything. And it's in that moment of desperation where you realize the reason why that the answers don't matter and that the questions do is that that same moment when you realize that the answers aren't reachable. And you find yourself in Socrates's position where his friends go to consult the Oracle at Delphi and they're at, who's the wisest man in the land. And I like Socrates is and it's like, well, how can that be? I don't know anything. Yeah. No, I could not relate more to that story. That was exactly the kind of philosophy major I was as well. I, I thought I had an answer. I thought I had an answer about religion, about politics, about God, about where people were delusional and coming out of that is honestly kind of like a healing process because instead of learning to try to be right, which I guess is sort of the point too about the sophists in Platonic dialogues. They're the people who learn to argue beautifully so as to appear right. Um, But just to play gracefully with conversation itself in day-to-day life is a kind of philosophical answer. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, the, the other part of that though, is there has a lot, there's a lot of ego destruction that goes along with it and a lot of necessary humility. And I think the original Plato is an asshole thing is us going, he's an asshole because I want to be right. And part of maturing in term, it, part, of, part of maturing as a thinker, and as a person is um, trying to find what's right in everything kind of, or I guess as the Jesuits would say, finding God in everything. Precisely the quibble that Socrates is an asshole only is true 
if Socrates is what you are in that moment, which yep. is somebody that's trying to be right. Wouldn't you say it's who his antagonists are trying to be? Um, Because I don't think Socrates is trying to be right. No, well, no, that's what I'm saying is that like whoever's calling Socrates an asshole is in some uh, sense their, their uh, what do you call that? It's like a psychological term where you broadcast the way that you feel onto other people. Uh, projection. You're projecting. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's a projection because like that's what you, you are doing in your conversations most likely. Yeah. and then the irony is only merely compounded <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, yeah he's an asshole because i'm an asshole um but yeah um I like everybody thinks that they're socrates and actually it turns out that everybody's euthyphro exactly yeah and and that's why i love and maybe i should have brought this up in the intro too and we can talk about this in terms of Socrates. I know there was, I forget who, there was a, or there was a, I think it was a, an Oxford scholar, um, but he was talking about uh, the secularization of things against religion. And he said, when I read the ancients, I, I find myself saying without any hint of blasphemy, Saint Socrates, pray for me. And I thought that was very powerful. We talked, I don't remember what conversation it was, but we, I said something like, um, what is it underneath? It's, it's Christianity underneath and like it's turtles all the way down. I remember. Yeah. Right. And the reason why that joke was funny was because I, I think it's one of the new atheists is questioning maybe a native, uh, an, uh, an American Indian like shaman about his religious beliefs and like that the earth is a giant turtle and the um and the new atheist i forget i don't know if it was one of the new atheists but i think that it was it sounds like one of the things they would do and he asks the shaman well what's on what is the turtle standing on and the shaman says nothing it's just turtles all the way down <laughs> and there's something about that image that i love because it maps on to the same thing that I think about Christianity in the West. And it's like, you can like, look at me with a straight face and you're like, but Doyle, like Christianity doesn't arise until the year, like call it 30 AD, right? When the apostles are, when Jesus begins his public ministry or whatever. And you're telling me that these ancient Greek ideas that are, you know, Plato is, you know, 300 years before that. And the trad, the tragedians are 400 years before that. And Homer is um, 750 years before that. Like, uh, how can it possibly be that it's Christianity all the way down? Well, part of it is precisely what you just said. Um, in that, in that, that deepest moment, you have no problem saying St. Socrates pray for me. And part of it, the reason why is that I think that Christianity far better than has been given credit for is not a, is not something foreign that then takes advantage of Western thought, but it was in some sense, I mean, and I would believe this because I'm a symbolic thinker and a, and a practicing Christian. Like, I think that the reason why the Greeks were what they were was because they were the intellectual formation necessary for the deep rooting of Christianity in the West. 
Yeah. And, and that's interesting. That That's very interesting because I had the thought today um, because I was thinking of it and I was thinking of so much of what we hear from contemporary liberals in terms of like, you know, the misogyny of the fifties or the homophobia of our forebears or the racism of our forebears. And I started, I, I was an interesting thought. I was thinking that the new atheists were a natural process of Christianity and that Christianity had been dogmatic in a wrong way by enough people for long enough that it needed new atheists so that we got doyles. If that makes precisely, sense. precisely so because we missed antagonists. We missed but, something. We missed something yeah, when exactly. When, and there was also like you guys went on too long for too certain, and you need someone to come and smack you in the face and make you better through something like a Socratic dialogue. Like you need a antagonist to make a hero. You need some revision. You can't end at a truth, just like the Socratic dialogue. Christianity has to be a progressive conversation that evolves and become be- becomes better just as thinking and reasoning evolve and become better. In some sense, you could say that Christianity's interpretation of itself became stale. Yeah. And yes, that's exactly. and that's why it appears boring. That's why it's intellectually sometimes uninteresting. It can be and, caricatured. It shouldn't be able to be caricatured. Yeah. And maybe that's just Protestantism. <laughs> I'm gonna reserve yeah. too much judgment there. I, I think that we need more Catholics talking about the death of God and more atheists talking about salvation, is what I think. Yes. Well, and precisely, I mean, on that same vein, we need more Protestants talking about liturgy uh-huh. and ritual, right? It's, yeah. it's the whole thing of it. It's, it's, and we, we have truly gone far afield now from the euthyphro, just noting that, but, but nonetheless, <laughs> like, I think that there's, it's fundamental, it's deep that we got here because where Plato goes with these Socratic dialogues, like I said, the order typically is Euthyphro and then the Apology and then the Credo and then the Phaedo, is he actually leads us on a remarkably faith journey. The the Credo has, well, the Apology is his trial, right? Where he's actually condemned, found guilty, sentenced to death. The Credo is then like a sort of religious deeply passionate defense of the sacredness of the laws of the city. Even when Socrates is in this position where he's going to be condemned unjustly, he yeah. won't break the laws of the city. And then we go from there to the Phaedo, which is in, in ancient times known as on the soul. I mean, it's a dialogue about the immortality of the soul, the relationship between the soul and the forms and the great and the ideas and like this book is so deep that um, I think it's, is it Cato the Younger? Is that the guy who is a Republican fighting against Julius Caesar in one of the, in the, in the Roman Civil War, rather than surrender to Julius Caesar and be brought back to, to Rome and given clemency? Instead, he decides, hey, bring me Plato's Phaedo, I'm going to read it and then I'm going to kill myself. Yeah. And it's, it's this deeply religious um, orientation of precisely what's happening here in the Euthyphro. Like what Socrates is responding to, this commitment to 
precise terminology and language, this commitment to um, humility at all costs, this commitment to, I know that none of my working definitions are ever a capital D definition uh-huh. is the beginnings of a religious journey that ultimately results in a worship of things that must simply be above. And I mean that in like a hierarchical sense than human being. Yeah. And I think it's also, it's the collapsing of the fear of mortality in that sense. Right. Right. Like because it's, get... it's, 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 it's precisely this way of dealing with ideas and engaging with arguments that does feel like it actually in, in Socrates's case, it ablutes his fear of death. Yeah. Oh yeah. Can I, I found a quote in my, in my, uh, in my planner this week and I, it sucks because the picture I have on my phone has the name just say Anias and then the last name's cut off. So I don't know who it's by. Um, but the quote goes, life is a process of becoming a combination of states we have to go through where people fail as they wish to elect the state and remain in it. This is a kind of death. And it's, it's also great that your planner can teach you philosophy, but I think this is right on point with what you're talking about. Um, as soon as you accept the, the non-ending state, which is very, very in line with this dialogue, uh, the dialogue asks, what is piety? And the interlocutor walks away. Uh, as soon as you ask the question, simply go on, uh, that life simply goes on. It's stagnation that is a death. It's any kind of, any kind of conclusion that you reach as a finality that's a kind of death. And then I think what you're calling religious, I might start calling ethics or a way of being in the world. Um, but I guess I could throw in the religious concept of grace here too. It's a, it's a way of starting to play with life gracefully rather than playing with it as a means to reach a finality or a climax, an ultimate conclusion. Well, and I think you actually have to go to the conversation about grace. And this is, again, it's, it's, it's kind of skipping <laughs> from the Euthyphro into the later one. But in, um, it's in the Mino, which is, at least in the edition that both of you and I have read of these dialogues, the, uh, the translator sticks the Mino between the, the Credo and the Phaedo, yes? And the Mino is specifically around the question of what is virtue? What kind of thing is virtue? And, um, and in the Mino, the question is ultimately about whether or not virtue is the kind of thing that can be taught. Uh-huh. And there's the really famous scene where um, Socrates proves that all knowledge is innate knowledge because he gets a slave boy that's never been um, instructed in mathematics to construct a mathematical proof that ends up being right. Um, that's what the dialogue is most famous for, but like deeper than this, they actually end up with the virtue. It turns out at least in this dialogue is more something like grace. Like it may, it doesn't seem that um, virtue is something that can be taught because the, those men that are most virtuous and they're using a whole lot of Greek examples um, um, of great statesmen who are very virtuous and magnanimous and these sorts of things. And they have terrible, wretched sons. And they managed to teach their sons how to be good chariot racers and good wrestlers, but they didn't manage how to teach their sons to be virtuous. And wow. 
So they end at this place and I've skipped a bunch of it. So please don't, don't skip it, read it. It's, it's great. But they arrive at this idea that, well, it's almost like the gods have to grant virtue and therefore no, virtue isn't something that can be taught. Therefore it's not really knowledge. It's not really skill. And they end up defining what you and I today would call grace. Uh, and that's why I continue to assert that like, there's this very fundamentally religious aspect. And, and perhaps that's the way that this translator has just orchestrated these five dialogues that, that kind of leads us there. But frankly, this translator knows Plato better than I do. And so, and better than almost anybody reading it. So I would assume that he probably has something to offer by giving us that ordering. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I mean, the place I would move naturally is into grace, but I was wondering where you think we should, should be turned back to the dialogue. Should we continue this broader level discussion? Um, you know, I, I just want to, I want to conclude this thought with, with a quote from the Mino, because I just, I just think it's worth, I think it's worth doing here. Please. It follows from this reasoning, Mino, that virtue appears to be present in those of us who may possess it as a gift from the gods. We shall have clear knowledge of this when, before we investigate how it comes to be present in men, we first try to find out what virtue in itself is. But now the time has come for me to go. <laughs> and so we get, we get sort of a, to read at a funeral. Yeah. Well, we get sort of a flipping of what happens in, um, in the Euthyphro where the interlocutor leaves early in the Mino it's, they attempt to define virtue I mean, maybe four times and it keeps breaking down, keeps breaking down. They think, okay, it must be something like grace. I'm done now. I got to go. So one of the things, unless you have any thoughts on that specifically, one of the things I wanted to ask you, Max, is whether or not piety really has anything to do with the euthyphro. I don't think so. No, I don't. I don't. I do not think in any sense this conversation is about piety. I don't think this conversation is about what it's about at all. Um, I think, I think, I mean, what, what we see, at least in the Republic, is Socrates very much leads the conversation in a direction. And this one feels very happenstance. And I, I think that's where the commentary comes in to be about society more than it does about a philosophical concept or a religious concept of piety because you learn that a guy's about to go inside of a room and kill his father and yeah it basically in the end he has no time for this kind of philosophical examination of what piety is so i think as we began the conversation which maybe for the first time we began it in the right place um, this is a, a conversation that's a way of entering Plato and it's a way of gaining certain thinking tools. And it's also a, just a way of seeing characters in a society, the high priest as being the one who is certain and willing to commit violence. And the philosopher is the one who is about to be indicted and put to death. One so certain and the other completely uncertain and humble in his opinions. And I feel like that is, is more about the polity 
or um, people in a society and the way they deal with ideas than it actually is about any notion of piety. Uh, and I think the other way that we see this is that Socrates himself never offers a definition of piety in this dialogue. He simply asks to be taught what it is and is found wanting. So I don't really think we, I mean, there definitely is elements of a conversation on piety here, but I don't think that's what the dialogue itself is about. Well, and in in this vein, it's precisely this is what makes it such a good setup for the religious arc of the next few dialogues, right? Where it turns out that there's so much more to be said about the sacred, whether it's in the laws or the relationship between the soul and reincarnation and the forms. It turns out that the philosopher has way more to say about these things than the priest does or else Euthyphro would have offered something of value here. Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think it also calls into question um, authority more than anything, like whether it's political authority or religious authority, um, simply through the tools you were talking about of kind, species, and difference, of modal and essential change, uh, one of the high priests of Athens he appears to be fundamentally ignorant about what he claims to know most. It, that's amazing. It, it is setting up something. And it, the other thing is, I was going to say, it's very much like Star Wars, that these are the dialogues that kind of come first, and you leave the symposium and the Republic after. Because it's very much a tasting round of what Plato is. And it's right. a, a wonderful introduction to the way that he thinks and the things he's trying to show. Um, and in that sense, it's kind of cool. It's, it's very much like a, a sports practice, training for a game, training for something. Um, and in that sense, it's kind of a beautiful introduction that doesn't reveal itself as an introduction. Totally. Well, and it's, it's not like the, Socr the Socratic dialogue. Oh, so the, the Socratic dialogues are the last days of Socrates dialogues. I mean, the Phaedo ends with yeah. Socrates you, drinking the hemlock. But you would have any student start with the youth of Rome. Totally. Totally. And then you go back and you read things like the Symposium, Gorgias, the Republic. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, they're, they're introductory, and, but they're also, I mean, they're introductory in the sense that they actually lead you into something. Uh -huh. you know um which is the the latin sense of the word um yeah. to introduce it's also i mean as far as the story goes too if this is socrates outside of the court that condemns him to death it's also uh it's also like a beautiful revelation of his character um like as a man and it's bef before his trial he's not pacing trying to think of his defense he's casually having a conversation with a high priest uh, outside of the court about the nature of piety. So even in the face of death and condemnation, he's unafraid uh, because all he's tried to done is all he's tried to do is simply find the truth with each person who's a member of his city that he comes across. Um, and there's something beautiful in that itself too. Yeah, in some sense, that's his great defense or that's his, the fundamental conscience that he has to lean back up against is that well, what I'm doing now, I've, I've always done. I've gone seeking wisdom and found that almost everybody who claims to be wise is devoid of it. 
<laughs> and yet he and yet he doesn't ever switch his tune and say, well, then I'm the one that has wisdom. Like the yeah. fact that he's the wisest man in Greece continues to be a, and an, it's, 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 he can't, he can't, he doesn't get it. Like, I don't understand. He never, <laughs> he never buys into that as a capital T truth. Yeah. And I think too, like it's, that's very powerfully why they kill him. It's because he won't play by their rules on a fundamental level. Um, I think that's sort of, I don't know, maybe he's the original version of a contrarian, but there is something very unnerving for people who want a, a sense or acceptance from someone who won't give it to them. Like, till, his, till his dying breath, he goes, no, I, I still don't quite know. All I've ever done is just ask questions and try to try to find the right way. It's... Maybe fitting to at least briefly mention that most beautiful scene in the Republic about the cave. And, you know, he, Socrates is essentially giving a prophecy of his own, what will happen to himself. And like, obviously it's Plato writing it. And so he has the 2020 hindsight, but ultimately Socrates describes the world as a cave where your entire life you're bound up and you're looking at the wall of a cave and there's a, a fire behind you and shadows moving across the, the wall from objects that are also behind you being cast on the wall. And eventually what happens is that somebody is let out of the cave and realizes that they, that there's a whole world out there that the sun is infinitely brighter than that fire behind you and that objects are real in and of themselves. They're not mere shadows. And he tries to go into the cave and bring people with him essentially like to convert them to that. What the, the, the life that they're living is nothing but an illusion. Uh-huh. And what do you suppose they would do to him? Well, they they would kill him. Yeah, they would call. They would mock him, laugh at him, and most likely kill him. They would mock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's what happens here. Um, and I think that that again, like, just betrays a fundamentally religious aspect to the work that Socrates is doing. He's trying to lead everyone to a real engagement with the real and to never be content with these intermediaries, these um, half truths that, you know, the, the dangerously sort of accurate um, representations, but to always engage deeply engage with the real. And I think that that, that call to action is just, it's that, that in and of itself, it has eternal appeal. And that's why these books are great works. Oh, it does. Yeah. Because we uh, always need that. Because right now, what is the cave? The cave is scrolling on Instagram for endless hours. Yeah. Or political orthodoxies of one form or another. Or <laughs> COVID policy. Uh, yeah. No, it, this does have endless practical appeal in that sense, too. Um.
No, I think that's beautiful. And the cave, the, I think I think we should just do an entire podcast on the cave because it is it is an incredibly compelling metaphor. But it's also fascinating and in the same sense that we've been talking about humility and grace, that the one that rises out of the cave and sees the true forms of things is also just fundamentally the most humble and uncertain. So it's almost as if having seen truth, uh, you would never claim to own it. And that that in itself, I think, is very therapeutic to anyone who finds themselves in any kind of existential or identity crisis with ideas. Um, it, it prioritizes the, the continued dance with ideas and the living through life over the uh, arrival at ultimatums or the taking of any fundamental side. And I don't know, at least for me, that's, that's helps me return from uh, my mind to my life. Um, the actual having of conversations rather than the thinking about conversations, if that makes sense. Max, I don't know that I have anything to add. I don't either. I think, I think we've done it justice. Well, we'll get to the Republic and we'll decide if we've given it justice, but uh, it was a pious attempt. <laughs> it was it was a pious attempt uh it is beloved by the gods the attempt that we have just uh we have just done but only some of them but only some of them not all of them <laughs> not all of the gods. well wonderful hey this is this has been great i think i think we we sort of struggled through um what is uh, what otherwise could have been a very short discussion about a very short dialogue um but i really do feel that we we hit some of the high points, namely in the relationship between sort of like the philosophical, logical, rhetorical tools and like the life that we're meant to live as philosophers and sort of that achievement of humility and sort of this sort of uh, grace view of virtue, which prevents any sort of like intellectualization of virtue and thinking, oh, I'm smart, therefore I'm virtuous. Um, yeah. I think that we really did... Um, it was somewhat sporadic, but I do believe that there's, there's a, there's a nice ribbon that ties around all of these things. And, and I think to, to sum it up um, in as few words as possible, I think it really is that the person who, who, who thinks that they know is the person that's farthest from the truth. And I think that specific, like we live in a day and age where almost no one is willing to admit ignorance of anything everybody's oh. an expert including like i mean frankly like what we're doing here on this podcast like casting ourselves as experts of this platonic dialogue <laughs> right and it's like no we're not like we've read it yeah. a few times and we've studied it a little bit and we've talked about it together you know for yeah. hours before but like and so it's that sort of that is what i think the attitude of of this dialogue ought to be is that the people who claim to know the things are the ones that you should be the most skeptical of yes especially if those things are justice piety what you ought to do fundamentally what the good life is what the just society is or things those that you could execute people for yes exactly the, th the things you would kill someone for anyone claiming to know that <laughs> yeah <laughs> but perfectly and i think the other thing too i would add to this is uh this is the first plato dialogue we've done and i think it was a good introduction for us but i think this is the beginning of a plato conversation we're going to have um 
So hopefully most of the people listening to this loved the next four conversations enough to come back to the intro and see how uh, maybe haphazard we started. Yeah, totally. It's It's been several years since we hit the symposium in the Republic the first time. I think that starting kind of afresh with the Euthyphro, um, you know, if we're lucky, I'd, I'd love to hit the apology, credo, mino, fado. Um, sure. And before even returning, I know we've done a symposium, but frankly, I think we should return to the symposium and the Republic um, at some point, at least. Um, yeah, full Plato series. Full Plato series. Um, we definitely have some some good modern stuff uh, working up. I I don't think we have a formal plan, but we had uh, discussed Fahrenheit perhaps, 451. And yeah, letters Fahrenheit to 451, 1984, Letters to letters Ian Contrarian. To, yeah. I think those will be good compliments. And I don't know if we want to go modern pat or modern ancient, modern ancient, but we'll find a way through that. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe two ancient, one modern is a good, a good recipe because the ancients tend to be a, a bit more brief. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. Well, perfect. Hey everyone. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you made it this far, um, we, we really appreciate, um, you know, your support just by listening, sharing this podcast with people you might, uh, that you think might find it interesting. We really do want to hear from you. Um, just like Max and I, I, I hope that you've gotten the sense that we don't really believe that we're right about anything. I think, I hope <laughs> that you, uh, I hope that you think that we, um, are open to your thoughts and ideas because we really are. And we want to hear from them. Um, if you think that we're wrong, we'd love the pushback. If, you think we're right. We'd love to hear why. Um, so please, uh, please do follow us on Twitter and Instagram, Cryptosophy FM on, on both those platforms. Um, if you go to cryptosophy.fm, that'll redirect you to our link tree um, where you can find all of the ways to engage with us. Um, and otherwise, just thanks so much for entering to the dialogue with us. Um, great works number 11 is in the books. Thank you guys. And thank you, Doyle. That was fun as always. <laughs>